Welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Formula Legend. On this week's edition, the German Grand Prix, why is Nico Rosberg so bad? And why is Ferrari so bad? That's all to come on this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato. I'm on a train. This is very theatre of the mind stuff because it's the mid-season break, so we're physically as well as metaphorically moving away from the final race of the first half of the year. And I'm on this train with my guest. He's a freelance F1 journalist. His name's Abhishek Takle. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's good to have, it's good to be in the break, isn't it? Uh, hasn't felt like much of a break yet, <laughs> but it's been it's been hectic this day. Over time, I'm sure it will uh, it'll feel better. It'll feel a little bit calmer. But it has been a very busy end to the season because we've had six races in eight weekends, which is a lot. And this is, of course, Formula One's longest ever calendar. Uh, and it sort of culminated in that sense, didn't it? Because it really felt like in Germany that everyone wanted to go home. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone was just sort of keen to get on with it get done and go find a beach to lie on somewhere <laughs> and and fair enough because they've all learned it mm-hmm. i think that's fair to say yeah. it has been a, a hard earned after the longest first half of the year i think in formula one history but specifically to the german grand prix we were treated after one and a half average ish races to a pretty interesting one actually the tires came alive there was fuel management and expectations the temperatures were high there wasn't any rain and we actually got to see some pace play out amongst the cars now let's start from the very beginning well let's actually start a step before the beginning and talk about qualifying because nico rosberg got pole for his home grand prix which not everyone expected given he had a, a problem on his first run and lewis hamilton's obviously in fine form but all of that was irrelevant at the end of the day because he lost it once again on the first turn now before we get into the strategy this is key because hamilton took it off him from the first turn which is usually the opposite of what happens Absolutely. I mean, the start is where Nico lost it because he'd been. You know, this this was the weekend, home weekend. I mean, if you if you if you think too much about the <laughs> home advantage, home but Grand Prix. yeah. And this was the race he wanted to sort of seize the title lead back from Hamilton, which he'd conceded the last race in Hungary. Right? Mm-hmm. He dominated the weekend. Really, if you think about it, topping all practice sessions. Hamilton probably saving his engine was running a bit uh, was was running a bit down on par on Friday. And, but on Saturday, Rosberg just pulled out all the stops. I mean, that was a phenomenal pull lap, if you mm-hmm. think about it. He was carrying three laps of fuel. He had just that one shot. Uh, stayed cool under pressure and delivered. But then the race <laughs> happened. <laughs> and then didn't deliver in the end. <laughs> Ultimately, Rosberg's story is one of non-delivery. It's interesting to note that Lewis Hamilton, not often a man we regard as someone who actively, I guess is introspective in terms of his form because he's the guy who can jump in the car and be really quick you know he doesn't do a lot of in-season testing doesn't do a lot of simulator work but it was interesting to learn that after the start of the year when his starts were very poor he has a man who's helping him with his starts a start coach and that's been really key to him being able to overcome Rosberg's advantage I think that's very interesting uh, that he has a start coach I mean uh, look Michael a lot of lot of sports, a lot of players rely on coaches. But Formula One is a sport where drivers don't really go to coaches. I don't mm. know why that is, but they just don't like to be told how to drive. So it's 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 really interesting. Hamilton's basically got himself a start coach. He's identified his starts as a weakness, as mm-hmm. they have been uh, the first sort of early part of the year. And uh, yeah, it's it's worked for him because Hungary he made a great start got the lead and was never challenged uh, mm-hmm. same in Germany so it's obviously working for him whatever he's doing with the coach now if we look at the overall strategy expectations of this race Pirelli was pretty 
firm that three stops would be the fastest way, although somewhat marginal with a two-stop if you could get the tyres to last. But it was pretty warm in Germany, uh, and also because this track does require a little bit of fuel, the cars are all quite heavy. So mm-hmm. it was leaning towards the three-stop race. I want to say first and foremost, though, because we will be looking back at the first half of this year a little bit later on in general terms. We've had this three-tyre rule introduced in 2016. The medium tyre, the hardest tyre, almost didn't feature at all no, this weekend. It didn't, it didn't. I mean, I think that was just, they just sort of, some teams didn't even bother running it in practice, mm. I think. They just sort of gave it back to yeah. Pirelli as they're supposed to. But, uh, yeah, some teams used it as a practice tyre, sort of did a few laps on it, and that was it. Mm. It was never really, yeah... It, it was never really a big part of the weekend at all. I wonder if there's a refund involved for those <laughs> who can just give them back. I don't want them. They're not good. They're not as fast as you well, They can give me one and I can use that for a coffee table probably. <laughs> yeah, we'll take them. If you don't want them, I'm more than happy to take a free medium tyre. There was a great difference in strategy actually, which is fantastic given that there were so many limitations in this race, whether it be heat or fuel, because normally in those situations we see most drivers just do essentially the same thing. Not only do we see differences in each individual driver, but even the teams, by teams I mean Mercedes and Red Bull Racing, they split their strategies amongst themselves. There are two things I want to pull out here. First of all, Hamilton did the optimum strategy, did his optimum race because he was in the lead. Red Bull Racing has sufficiently regained confidence, I think, to the point where they were looking at two stopping, even though they wanted a strategy focused on the super soft tyre. And that's an interesting return to winning psychology for Red Bull. Absolutely. Red Bull have just been resurgent this year. And I guess coming out of the slump that they went into in 2014 and especially 15, and, mm-hmm. and now sort of uh, being able to string a strong run of results, that confidence is coming back. And... You know, you know where I think that confidence uh, really stood out was they went in planning a two-stopper, mm-hmm. realized, look, this is not working, Deg- degradation's too high, let's switch to a three-stopper. And they did that in a very agile, nimble way, mm-hmm. where they sort of adapted perfectly to a three-stopper. And, and, and that agility they showed on the pit wall, I think, is... is uh, a greater sign of confidence mm-hmm. that they're showing again than anything else really mm-hmm. and this was a pivotal moment the first stops were a really pivotal moment in this Grand Prix because the heat combined with fuel made the super soft tyre on which obviously the top 10 started on given that's how qualifying works made it not very usable in the opening stage of the race when fuel was heavy degradation was really quite high but Hamilton and Ricardo were placed on the soft tyre which theoretically should have been better and in truth was better whereas Verstappen and Rosberg gambled on a another stint on used on new super soft tyres I beg your pardon and that kind of undid their races in respect because after that we did see that Ricardo had an optimum strategy because Red Bull asked Verstappen to let him pass brave move on Red Bull's part as yeah, well yeah absolutely uh, I think I think the logic behind putting Rosberg on that strategy uh, on, on the super soft rather than the soft for following the first stops would have been because uh, remember he lost out not just to Hamilton but also the Red Bulls at the start so they probably thought let's put him on the super softs mm-hmm. uh, you know he can sprint do a few sprint sort of quali style laps get past the Red Bulls mm-hmm. and then sort of just look after his tyres until the next stop but uh, that didn't work out because he couldn't find a way past the Red Bulls and it only compounded his degradation problem really mm-hmm. he did find a way past one Red Bull <laughs> technically well, uh, that uh, move I want to talk about that move for a moment because I think this interesting implications for Rosberg for the rest of the season we will be talking about Rosberg don't you worry in a moment properly but it was a similar move to the one he pulled off in Austria because his strategy did demand it he shouldn't have been behind Verstappen at that point he needed to be ahead of him 
What was your take on that Rosberg move and what do you think his thought process is now when he's going wheel to wheel? Mm. Uh, look, I think uh, the move in Austria l- looked a lot more deliberate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying he did it purposely. That's not what. That's not at all what I'm saying. Only he knows mm-hmm. what he did. But it looked a lot more deliberate and there, were, there was a lot more context to that move. Mm-hmm. You know, dueling Hamilton, not wanting to... Uh, lose to him in a wheel-to-wheel fight after having done so for so many races. So there was a lo- lot of underlying sort of context to that move in Austria. Here, I think he found himself quicker than Verstappen. Mm-hmm. Uh, went for a move down the inside. Uh, Verstappen, I don't think, quite saw him, and he moved away. And then Rosberg realized Verstappen hasn't seen him, so suddenly he just slowed down. He, he just really slowed down to crawl on the mm-hmm. inside. And it just looked very clumsy, you know. It's like, should I go? Oh, let me back off. Oh, should I go? Okay, I'll mm-hmm. go. And then he just sort of, in Christian Horner's words, decided to drive to Cologne. <laughs> it was like a very awkward roundabout situation for those yeah. guys. Do I go? No, you go. No, no, I'll go. No, wait, I'll go now this time. That's how the strategies unfolded up to the third stop. And this was the critical moment for what decided the top four as they were. Because up until that point, Hamilton and Ricardo had the same strategies. It was super soft. They started on, then to the soft, and then super softs again. Red Bull Racing had a three super soft strategy, essentially. They wanted to use them three times because they felt like they had the long run pace to make them work. Hamilton and Mercedes felt like they had enough inherent pace to make the softs work. Indeed, we should go back to Q1 at this point because in Q1, they got through. They topped Q1 with the soft tyre while everyone else was on the super soft. So it was a founded yeah. argument. Absolutely. It was, and, and, and by quite a margin, too. Mm. You know, yeah. Q1. And we, we looked at the timing screens. We looked at the sort of the tyre charts and we were like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, we got so close to just leaving it though. Point going, well, there's no point being at this oh, Let's just go on holiday now. Yeah, well, we may as well. It seemed like everyone else had at this point. So Hamilton went on to a used set of soft tyres, whereas Daniel Ricciardo went on to a brand new set of super softs. And this is where the race momentarily became very, very interesting because Ricciardo began closing the gap on Hamilton at quite a rate at some point because it seemed That's like right. those tyres yeah. had enough pace in them. That's right. I think he, he, he closed them down to about five seconds or mm. something. Uh, but, but remember, but that was also uh, Hamilton managing his space because mm-hmm. he's uh, he's trying to eke out this engine for as long as he can and he said as much he said look I turned it down I was just sort of managing my pace and once it got to sort of the five second mark I realized okay I need to get a move on and mm-hmm. he opened it up again mm-hmm. um, so I think there was, there was a bit of that uh, factoring into that as well mm-hmm. so I think what's really interesting here though is that over time that equalized the pace fell out of Ricardo's tires Hamilton upped his pace slightly just enough to keep that margin so the order ultimately was first and second Hamilton Ricardo for third and fourth though the final place on the podium Verstappen and Rosberg had also identical strategies from the used super softs they started the race on to new super softs then to new softs Rosberg did the same as Hamilton and moved on to used softs believing he presumably had enough pace Verstappen went on to used super softs on which he felt a little bit uneasy he didn't look his very best in managing the tyres this weekend did Verstappen part of the reason he couldn't beat Ricardo. but whereas we saw Ricardo ultimately couldn't catch Hamilton. Hamilton had enough inherent pace even on the used softs. Rosberg could not make a dent on Verstappen on... They were super softs, but they were used. Not even at the end of the race when Verstappen's tyres should properly have been going off. What does this say about Rosberg realistically? I don't know. I mean, that final stint... um, Toto Wolff said after the race that Rosberg was struggling for pace because Mm. he didn't quite uh, have the card in the sweet spot in terms of the setup. Um, whatever the reason, I don't know, but um, yeah, it's it. Uh, this 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 season's really not turning out 
well for Rosberg. It started so so well. Around the four straight wins, uh, mm-hmm. seven in a row if you count back to the Mexican Grand Prix last year. Uh, but then he's just not he's just not been on it since then because I, I was just doing a doing the maths this morning. And Hamilton, since Monaco, which was his first win of the season, mm-hmm. has scored 160 of the maximum 175 available. Mm-hmm. 160 points yeah. of the maximum 175 available. Rosberg, in that time, has scored just um, 98. Mm-hmm. He, he scored 100 out of 100 in the first four and only 98 since Monaco, in the seven races since Monaco. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like he's really been hamstrung by any reliability problems, except maybe he started a bit further back in Austria because of the gearbox, uh, mm-hmm. uh, unscheduled gearbox change. Uh, but other than that, he's not really been hamstrung as such. He's just not, he's just not strung those results together. Mm, it's interesting because we say that Rosberg's not really been on it. I, it. There is a question as to whether or not he's dropped the ball. It doesn't look like he's particularly bad let's say like he's not driving much worse than he was at the start of the season Hamilton on the other hand ever since the Spanish Grand Prix when he fell 43 points down has raised his game for me it looks like Hamilton's raised his game because the the difference is he has outscored Rosberg by 62 points in that margin as you said 62 points since the middle of May which is enormous this is the Hamilton that we saw last year for me. And it's the same Rosberg we ultimately saw last year. Maybe 1% or 2% better. But is this just the expected order? Were we wrong to think that Rosberg could beat Hamilton in a straight fight? Um, I don't think it's the same Rosberg that we saw last year. I think uh, Rosberg since Monaco has been, um, has been a worse Rosberg than last year, in fact. Because it's not just that he hasn't... Uh, he's been outscored by Hamilton mm-hmm. but if you look at it his results he's only finished in those seven races he's only finished thrice on the podium which mm-hmm. considering he's in the fastest car on the grid is remarkable and again without being hamstrung by any issues mm-hmm. I think I don't I don't know what's what's going on uh, with him but yeah he's he has compared to the start of the season certainly dropped the ball yeah it's interesting to see how that's going to play out because we are halfway through Hamilton has unbelievably recovered that enormous deficit uh, to which we must pay credit because this has not just been Hamilton rocking up having a go winning some races because he's kind of good this is committed brutal ruthless Lewis Hamilton that has put his teammate to the sword absolutely and and think about it 43 points in the middle of May Mm -hmm. uh, 43 points behind in the middle of May and now um you know he's 19 points ahead and if he wins in Belgium even if Rosberg finishes second he actually pulls one entire race mm-hmm. wins worth of points clear of of Rosberg so you know he's got penalties coming up yeah. possibly a, a, a drop to the very back of the grid mm-hmm. um, and if he sort of wins in Belgium and takes that penalty in Monza even if he then doesn't finish he'd still lead the championship by one point mm-hmm. I mean think about it yeah and that's that's sort of the the strategic way of looking at how he's going to take that penalty because he knows he's going to need a new power unit he's got Spa and Monza coming up which are tracks that are reasonably easy to overtake certainly if you have a brand new power unit that's also the Mercedes power unit that does tend to help so another win would leave him in the clear pretty much I mean there's a potential for him to have to take a second uh, power unit penalty later in the year but a 25 point margin is enough to give him proper control of this title yeah it's basically a proper reset. In Hungary, mm-hmm. he said that, you know, okay, I'm just a point behind now. When he went into Hungary, a point mm-hmm. behind Rosberg. Um, but he didn't see it as a reset because he'd got that engine penalty coming yeah. up. But effectively now, if he wins in Belgium and pulls you know, 26 points clear mm-hmm. of Rosberg, if, even if Rosberg finishes second, um, yeah, that's a, that's a proper, proper, mm-hmm. that, that's a reset 
and some. Yeah. Now let's talk about Ferrari. Now, normally on this program, when we talk about strategic blunders, we talk about Williams. That's not been the case recently, to Williams's credit. So I, forgive me, please. But Ferrari had a very, very average race. I don't want to say terrible. I want to say extraordinarily average because they finished where they qualified. The only difference being Vettel finished ahead of Raikkonen. Uh, their strategy did nothing for them. Potentially, there was an opportunity for them to move up and pressure the guys ahead of them, which we'll talk about in a moment. But was Ferrari ever in this race, really, considering that they just seemed sort of off the pace all weekend? Have they dropped back too much to play a part at all in the victory race? I mean, <laughs> if you ask them, they're still, they're still second me. best Mercedes. Mm. And, and they have been. Yeah. And they always will be. <laughs> it's an incredible aim for them. They had, of course, a three-stop strategy. Started on the used super softs, then went soft, used super softs, and softs again. The strategic blunder in question was not merely that they ran a very conservative race based on the soft tyre, which, while good at the opening parts of the race, wasn't effective enough at the end of the Grand Prix when most people were on super softs. The problem was that they thought they might be able to undercut Verstappen when he was behind Rosberg. Now, whether or not there's truth to this, they seem to believe that there was. The error was... When they radioed Sebastian Vettel saying, we need to pit now to undercut, Sebastian Vettel said, who? And they said, oh, Verstappen. At which point Red Bull pitted Verstappen. Absolutely. I think that, that, was, very, that was a very comical moment yeah. because they said, okay, Sebastian, pit now. We can undercut. Uh, we can work the undercut. Mm. Sebastian just says, but they're miles away. Who are we going to undercut? Yeah. Yeah. And that was true because I think except for the opening laps, I don't think Vettel was ever within undercut range of no. uh, Verstappen. He probably would have just ended up finishing closer. But mm-hmm. I don't think he was ever in, um, in, in, in range of the undercut. Really. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like it. No. Because the pace on the soft tyre just wasn't enough to beat. I mean, Verstappen, again, we saw held off. Well, I think on any tyre, really, for Ferrari this weekend, the pace wasn't good enough. Also true. Interesting that they say, when we're looking at the second half of the season, well, we know what the problem is. We're not going to tell you what it is. But I reckon we'll fix it. Yeah. Does that ring true to you at all? Well, well, it is so... <laughs> They're so confident. I'm pretty sure they're going to win the Constructors' title this year because they know what the problem is. <laughs> they're just so confident. Confidence alone will be enough for them. I want to look a little bit further down the order. Uh, let's talk about Sergio Perez because he's one man that made an undercut-esque move uh, work also with the soft tie predominantly because he had what he called his worst ever start in Formula 1. But he essentially beat everyone behind him. All the rabble, let's call them. Haas, Renault, etc. The Toro Rossos by stopping on lap 8, getting off his used super soft tyres and doing a longish run on the softs, then a shortish run on super softs, and then a very long run towards the end of the race on the softs. This is this is sort of just what Perez does, isn't it? He just so this manages. Is a, this, is a, this was a textbook Sergio mm. Perez race where you know, he's always been known to be somebody who's great at managing the tyres, mm-hmm. and so he's thrived in the sort of Pirelli era. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that was textbook Perez race. And, and, and bear in mind that the Force India this year, I mean, typically uh, their car has been uh, good easy on the tyres really not mm-hmm. working the tyres too much not taking too much out of them so Perez has been able to do these longer stints but this year the Force India tyres not that uh, Force India is not that great on its tyres and mm-hmm. yeah so I think Perez did a remarkable job to run those long stints that he did yeah uh, and he really made that strategy work the only alternative for him might have been a two stop strategy which was generally unfavoured mm. uh, up and down the field Pirelli again said it would be marginal the conditions on the day proved there would 
it would be too difficult unless you'd really conditioned your tyres from qualifying if you're in the top 10 or otherwise. Uh, one man who did manage to do it and score points was Valtteri Bottas. He got very close to not scoring points, though, because he faded very quickly towards the end. He should have finished ahead of Button. He should have finished in 8th. In the end, he finished ninth because he stopped on lap 12 for softs and then lap 33 for softs again, which gave him a 33-lap stint mm. on a single set of tyres. Williams spent so long on, on trying to work out how to maximise these tyres during this Grand Prix during practice, especially on Saturday. They were frustrated they couldn't get it right. Is this just another sign that Williams isn't the team that can sort of recover on, on the weekend on Saturdays and Sundays like they used to and still end up third or second best? I think the problem with Williams is they're trying to do the best they can to get mm. back up there in the mix. Because remember, 2014 they were the, they they ended the season as second best to Mercedes, not mm. in the constructors, but in terms of uh, the pace ranking certainly. And since then, I think they've they've fallen away a little bit uh, behind Red Bulls and Ferraris and whatever. But mm. I think they're just sort of trying different ways, focusing on different areas to see how they can get back up to. Uh, the level of those teams and get back in the mix because the problem for Williams is they don't have the resources that these guys have so they, they're inevitably being out developed mm-hmm. so yeah so they're just they're, they're just looking around casting around for anything that might give them uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more of an edge now I know if you ask anyone at Williams they say money isn't the problem even though we know the financial inequality of Formula 1 does ultimately mean the more money you have, the more uh, points you can score, really, because you can just throw more at the car. It's nice to think in Formula 1 that if you're cleverer than everyone else, you can beat them, and that's occasionally true. But is this a case... And Williams was cleverer than everyone else in 2014, or cleverer mm-hmm. than most teams in 2014, not Mercedes. Uh, and they used to be able to get one up. They finished, was it, third in the championship for the last two years. Is this a sign now? I mean, Mercedes has been spending so much money over the last three years to maintain their position. Red Bull has no shortage of money. Even Ferrari, as hopeless as they are, have no shortage of money, and they're doing okay, better than Williams. Is this a sign now that we've gotten to that point in this cycle of regulations that cleverness isn't enough anymore? Uh, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Williams are being left behind by mm. Red Bull and Ferrari now, uh, but no, in, in in the sense that look at Force India. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, they they don't have the resources that uh, Williams does for, for that matter, or, or or any of the teams above them in the constructors. But they are threatening them for uh, the top four, mm. and that's just them being clever. Force India have always sort of what these smaller teams generally have to do is they don't have the resources to conduct a lot of tests and a lot of mm-hmm. experiments in the wind tunnel etc etc so what they've really got to do is you know throw their weight behind the concept and hope it sticks mm-hmm. and um, that's Forsen have just basically been good at doing that mm-hmm. and that's what Williams Pat Simmons actually said to me in Bahrain that's what um, uh, that's what they would have to do as well and that's going to be the battle now, Williams and Force India. So as we look ahead to the next half of the season after this German Grand Prix, and also, I think in the sense of identifying the pecking order in the first half, I think it was quite an illustrative Grand Prix with Mercedes and Red Bull close-ish, Ferrari having dropped back, and more importantly for this sort of top end of the constructors' fight, Williams and Force India battling each other for fourth place. Now we know Williams has directed... They may also be battling each other, sorry to interrupt mm. you, but they may also be battling each other for the services of Sergio Perez, you know. Well, <laughs> battling for the love of Sergio Perez is a race that interests me greatly. We know Williams has turned his attention to its 2017 car quite early. Force India also has, but they had one eye on this championship. Did Williams change its mind too early? Have they done the right thing in moving to 2017, given they did not expect at the start of the year Force India to be this good? Because at the start of the year, Force India wasn't this good. They were heavily outscored by Williams, but all of a sudden, this has become a very close fight. Well, 
I think I think I think the right to shift the uh, focus to 2017. Mm-hmm. Even if they finish fifth, and Force India finish fourth, that's okay because mm-hmm. I mean, look, Force India have already sh- shifted everything to 2017. They're just mm-hmm. now going to optimize the chassis. Um, so I don't know how much more they can get out of it anyway. So Williams just needs to do that as well. And yes, there is a chance Force India might overhaul them, but as a very dear friend of mine says, if you don't win. Second and downwards is like kissing your <laughs> sister, so <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, fair enough. Analogy is uh, put to one side for now. Uh, let's talk about McLaren as well in the second half of this year. They started still sort of a bit whatever, but since uh, seasons progressed, Honda's brought a power unit upgrade. The chassis has been upgraded. Jensen Button, Fernando Alonso finally delivering, not in this race for Fernando Alonso, but for Jensen Button, yes, on that promise to be regular point scorers. Do you see that improving very much in the second half of the year? Um, I, I wouldn't say very much, but I certainly do sense this sort of forward positive momentum building up behind mm. McLaren. Uh, yes, they're obviously way off where they want to be. Uh, remember, this is a team that's hoping to topple Mercedes uh, mm. from the top of the standings. It's like you know? Ferrari. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, but there, there does seem to be uh, a lot of optimism, optimism, a lot of energy and positive mm-hmm. momentum building up behind this team. You know, you, the, the, there is light at the end of the tunnel and it's, and it's getting bigger mm-hmm. and it's getting brighter. So, there seems to be that, certainly. And to look ahead to the battle at the front for these last, it's nine Grand Prix we have less than the set left in the second half of the season. Mercedes versus Red Bull Racing, very deliberately leaving out Ferrari. Prove me wrong, Ferrari, prove me wrong. Very close between Red Bull Racing and Mercedes. In fact, they split the Mercedes in this Grand Prix. Not quite enough to challenge Hamilton, but enough to push him a little bit. Red Bull Racing as a team has plenty of resources. They know exactly what they're doing. We know they have a very successful, very recent history. Do you think that Red Bull Racing can score more wins at the second half of the year? And let's say wins that occur when Mercedes doesn't crash out of a, of a, of a Grand Prix. I think it's possible. I think Singapore is the race they mm. might look at to uh, to do that. Uh, but but look, I mean, as far as the pecking order is concerned, I think it's going to, as uh, the races stick by, increasingly be set in stone. Mm-hmm. Because remember, next year, uh, Formula 1 is set for sweeping rule changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, teams are all going to sort of gradually start shifting their focus more and more to developing next year's cars. And that means uh, the, the scope for any upsets in the pecking order or any shuffling in the pecking order this year in the second half is just, just going to get smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. It will be an interesting second half of the year. It's been an interesting first half of the year as well, it must be said. We're on for, even if it's not a fight for the championship, in either championship, let's be honest, Abhishek, it seems like it could be a a closely run second half of the year. Certainly, I hope it is. Certainly, Formula One needs it to be. Abhishek Takler, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Michael. And that's all the time we have for this edition of the Strategy Report. If you want to read more about the strategy of the German Grand Prix, go to f1strategyreport.com for Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from Hockenheim. Or search for F1 Strategy Report on Facebook or Twitter. Can you do a better job of strategy than Ferrari? It's not very hard. Prove yourself. Download the Formula Legend mobile game, now available on iOS and Android. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter. And be sure to join me at the very end of August when we look back on the resumption of Formula One from the Belgian Grand Prix.